Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to today's podcast, The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. This is our first podcast of 2020, and as we approach uh, almost 10,000 listeners, I hope you will continue to enjoy the conversations and tell your friends and family to listen to keep them healthy and learn the latest medical treatments. Today's topic is on in-flight medical emergencies. Now, we all take airplanes to travel, to visit friends and family, for work, and of course, those needed vacations. The last thing you want to think about is, what if I get sick on the plane? Well, it turns out one in 600 flights, there is a medical emergency. I actually know from personal experience where I've had to volunteer about three times in situations where a medical emergency was occurring on a plane. Well, fortunately today, my guest is Dr. William Brady. He's a professor of emergency medicine, the vice chair for faculty affairs, and the David A. Harrison Distinguished Educator at the University of Virginia School of Medicine in Charlottesville, Virginia. Dr. Brady has written review articles on in-flight medical emergencies uh, that have been published in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine, among others as well. So with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Brady to the podcast. Thank you, Dean. Very much appreciate being here and having the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners. Great. You know, I'm going to start off with something interesting about who's available to help on an in-flight medical emergency. And one of the things you wrote in one of your articles, I thought it was fascinating. It's almost a great trivia question, that apparently flight attendants pre-World War II were, were typically nurses. Is that that's correct? What you said? Yes, sir. Yeah. How did early, that happen? Early in commercial aviation, flight attendants were in fact nurses, and uh, apparently the mindset was that nurses were used to supporting and taking care of people, and airlines recognized this and decided what better people to actually manage and care for their customers in flight, and if they had a medical issue, the nurse could help take care of it. And that carried on for probably the first maybe five to ten years of commercial aviation. And World War II came along with the huge demand for medical personnel, including nurses. And many nurses then left commercial aviation into the armed services as well as just supporting the war effort. And flight attendants uh, became non-medical personnel and pretty much have remained that. Yeah, that's a a big turn from being a nurse to... Now, you know, supplying drinks and uh, taking care of things. But they, as we'll talk about, they still have a lot of responsibilities, the flight attendants. So, so who is available today if somebody is on a flight going anywhere in the world, whether it's within the United States, whether it's international? Is it, as I presume, solely all volunteers, whether it's a physician, a nurse, uh, an EMT, a dentist? Is that the only uh, personnel that's available in case there's an emergency? Yes. Yes, there's no crew member that's identified as the medical provider. There's no consistent, reliable medical resource 
in terms of personnel on on all U.S. and most uh, uh, foreign commercial aviation. If you're a physician or a nurse or an EMT or a respiratory therapist or whatever traveling and you answer the call for medical assistance, other than fellow passengers that might have a medical background, you really can't rely on any appropriately trained medical personnel to help you out on the aircraft. Now, flight attendants have basic first aid training. Are they CPR certified? Yes, many, many, if not most, are CPR certified. Mm -hmm. And new legislation requires them to take another class on recognition and management of anaphylaxis. But in general, they are at best basic first aid providers and uh, they can do CPR. And you know what? That's appropriate. This yeah. is a commercial aircraft. Right. This this is not a flying medical clinic. This is not right. Uh, you know, uh, an entity that should be expected to provide definitive medical care. It shouldn't. It's an airplane. But but you know the funny thing though is Dr. Brady that as we probably know, I'm sure Air Force One is quite well equipped. If <laughs> there's a medical problem for the president in his travels, and us commoners have to rely on the grace of. Uh, you know, medically trained personnel, which I guess you're saying is correct. Uh, just out of curiosity, were you ever called upon to help out on an airplane? Yes, I have flown frequently and continue to do so. And I believe I've had four or five events that I've cared for over the years. A diabetic patient with hypoglycemia, Low blood a patient mm-hmm. experiencing an acute stroke, and then several people with alcohol intoxication. Oh, wow. Um, and I believe uh, actually recently somebody with a uh, convulsion. Oh, wow. All right, so we're going to get into individual things in just uh, a few moments. But before we get to that, I want the listeners to understand the unique environmental conditions on an air flight. And you mentioned this in your articles. I mean, it's obviously very different being thousands of feet above ground you know, where the physiological conditions are quite different when a person gets sick, you know, obviously even in a hospital versus being up in a plane or just riding an Amtrak train. So can you discuss and explain for the listeners the difference in the the air pressure and how that affects health when someone's on a plane? Sure. If I may, right before that, sure. I also just describe some non, non-physics-based issues to consider sure. as well? Sure. Okay. So, you know, first of all, uh, I think probably most of us have been on a commercial airliner at least once in our in our life, if not many times. It's a very confined type. That's space. right. You I have know. very awesome. limited ability for a patient to recline. You have extremely limited privacy. Yes. Um, so first of all, very confined space. Yeah. Secondly, it's noisy. You don't realize how noisy it is until you try to listen to something like heart sounds or auscultate a blood pressure. Right. It's very noisy with a very high ambient background noise level, which makes it hard, if not impossible, to hear some of your more subtle, lower uh, sounds. Again, like auscultating lung sounds, trying to listen for heart sounds, determining a blood pressure, etc. You're going to have limited supplies. We may have a chance to talk. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah about, I, oh, I'm, we have some really please. good things to talk about that in a few minutes. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So I won't spend much time talking about that now. We'll, we'll follow up on it. But you have very limited supplies. Very limited. I know. I Look, that's happened to me, too. You know, I'll just say quickly to the listeners, my first experience, which I never forgot, I had just graduated medical school and I was on a flight 
coming back into the United States with my future wife, and we were, we were both in medical school together, and a person was having uh, chest pain on the plane. And of course, they asked, are there any doctors on the plane? So my wife and I, you know, my future wife and I look at each other like, I guess that's us, you know, because I didn't see anybody else come forward. <laughs> Finally, there was actually another person who was a medical student who was graduating in like in a month. And they said to him, no, 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 you can't go near the patient. So all of a sudden, my wife and I are now going through our third and fourth year medical school training to decide this patient had what was called unstable angina. I mean, he had chest, he had a history of some heart issues. And fortunately, he had medication with him. And what was really pretty awe-inspiring in some ways that the uh, captain and the attendant said to me, you know, should we divert the flight? And I'm like, I'm having to make this decision, <laughs> you know? So, uh, and then they brought the box out, which again, as you mentioned earlier, was very limited, a Benadryl tablet, an aspirin. I mean, really not very much, which I, I think fortunately has changed. And we, we are going to go in depth because I, I have your list from the articles. But I think also your point is well taken. You know, the when I think about it now, the confined space, it just seems like it's getting worse and worse. I don't know how even a well-trained medical doctor or personnel can do what they have to do because it's not like you have a, oh, yeah. an area where you could work on the patient. You know, God forbid someone goes into cardiac arrest even. So we'll, we yeah. will get into that, but uh, I, I think your point is really well taken. If we can, I'd like to just go back to a little bit of the physics. I think it's, it is important that because the people really need to know that airplane pressure is different. You know, because a lot of times you know, you're on a plane, you feel like you're just sitting in a room, right? I mean, we all like to pretend that because we don't want to be, it's kind of frightening to think you're 6,000 or whatever feet up in the air when, uh, you know, it's definitely different conditions. And, and, you, and you explain this pretty well in your articles. So could you just explain a little bit about the oxygen differentiation between being up in a plane and, you know, being on land? Sure. There's, there's a couple physical principles that we all learned in medical school and other training programs that you got to keep in mind. They're not particularly complex. Right. Um, the first basically is considering the partial pressure of oxygen at the height that you're traveling. Now, many commercial airliners, uh, when cruising particularly longer distances, will get up into, you know, 28,000, 34,000 feet. Oh, wow. So very, very high in the air. Happily, all commercial aircraft are pressurized so that the cabin environment is habitable, reasonable amount of oxygen, the temperature is maintained, et cetera, et cetera. But little known fact, most people don't know that commercial airline cabins are pressurized to the equivalent of about six to 8,000 feet not to sea level. So you that's, do have a high reduction up, yeah. in your partial pressure of oxygen. Yeah. I mean, I think you people know, have to appreciate uh, just for the listeners, I apologize for interrupting that again, I've gone on hikes and actually I once went with a family member, my dad, you know, who was very sensitive that we, and we were up in the, uh, the Rocky mountains. And I mean, he became very short of breath being at a very high elevation. So again, that's something that, you know, some people are more sensitive than others, even if they, have no medical condition, correct? I mean, there's just some people that just... Oh, very, very true, very yeah. true. So, you know, at sea level, pressure's uh, 760 millimeters of mercury, right? Right. And 21% right. of that should be oxygen, which is about 160 millimeters mercury oxygen. Okay. When you get up to the equivalent of 8,000 feet, which is certainly where many people hike and ski and, and live and, you know, pursue other recreational activities... 
the partial pressure of oxygen is 118 millimeters of mercury. So while most of us can tolerate that, there are people that can't tolerate it. You know, mm -hmm. people with significant chronic heart and lung disease, people with profound anemia, people with hemoglobinopathies, yeah, just to name points. a couple. Yeah. And these are the people that will decompensate. Now, you know, your father, you hiking at, at elevation, you're exerting yourself quite significantly. I've skied in Colorado at, at you know, the two-mile mark. And yeah, when you're exerting yourself, you definitely feel the reduction in the absolute amount of oxygen available to you. But remember, in a commercial airliner, most of us do fine because we're just sitting there and right. the most exertion we get is getting up to use the restroom. <laughs> so we're not really exerting ourselves. But people with chronic medical conditions that are really ha have chronic heart or chronic lung failure, these are people that need to be very careful about flying and get direction and guidance from their doctor prior to taking off. That's a great point. You know, one of the things you made me think about also, like, I remember I used to read, like, for example, athletes who obviously are usually in, in, in top physiological condition, when they would get ready for, let's say, an Olympics, like in Mexico City with a very high elevation and lower oxygen saturation, they would train for weeks, you know, to get their body accustomed. And, you know, again, most people who are traveling, it's, you know, it's, well, quote, an acute situation. They're, you know, they're planning to go on a trip somewhere. You know, they're not preparing necessarily for this stress on their body. And uh, so I think it's a really good point because I think you know, there are a lot of people who have had cardiovascular procedures who normally do fine in everyday life, but again, maybe need to prepare for this. The other thing too, I'm just curious because you understand the conditions also, it seems like in planes too, it's very dry, the air. You know, does that have an effect? Oh, yeah. You know, I know people can get dehydrated a little bit easier and, uh, very, very much so. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think we all feel that, uh, yeah. I mean, right and, your eyes, uh, yeah. for, for many, many reasons, hydrating yourself is the right thing to do with water. Alcoholic beverages, of course, uh, can promote dehydration among other things. Right. So right. please don't rely on that as your sole means of hydration because you're going to end up more volume down than you would if you had uh, not been drinking the alcohol. Yeah, I think people now, don't now there appreciate is, that. Yes. There is a couple other quick physical principles to mention, if okay. that's okay. Yeah, please. Yes. Uh, second, and not to, to scare anyone away by quoting a, a law of physics, but Boyle's Law, mm -hmm. which basically we all are becoming diaphoretic thinking about physics 101. <laughs> um, Boyle's, <was> tough. <laughs> Boyle's Law talks about gas volume relative to the atmospheric pressure. And in general, the volume increases as the pressure decreases. And we know that as we go from uh, sea level to the equivalent of 8,000 feet in an aircraft when we're cruising, we're going to have gaseous collections in our body increase in volume. Mm. Now, that can cause minimal discomfort if somebody has a little extra GI gas and maybe prompt a visit to the restroom. But if people have gas in other areas, then it can be very problematic. For example, let's just say somebody trips and falls in the airport strikes their chest on a corner of a table, Right. thinks they're okay, thinks a little ibuprofen will be fine, and in fact, they have a pneumothorax. Well, they get in the plane, they take off, they're at the equivalent of 8,000 feet. The gas volume is going to expand from a volume of 1 to 1 1.3. Right. Now, not a huge increase, but we all know that pneumothoraces can become problematic in terms of gas exchange and perfusion. 
And that small increase in volume can make a big difference in compromise. Yeah, the that, could, that could be. And there's, there's numerous other physiologic examples of gas being in closed portions of the body that if they expand can cause problems. You know, I'm glad you brought that point up. And then you know what I'm going to do now, because I really want to make it really relevant for the, the listeners. We're going to get into two things. We're going to get into the most common medical emergencies, which you actually listed in your article, and like treatments for them. And then we're going to go over... Who has to be careful about flying and special precautions? And I, I think these points that you're bringing up are going to come out more clearly. So let, let's start with this. You know, as you listed in the article, the most common medical emergencies on a flight are first one, fainting, okay, at 37%. So I'm thinking, why? You know, why would somebody faint? I mean, again, we, we just talked about dehydration, changes in blood pressure. I mean, what's your feeling? You know, if you were called on the plane, you know, someone passes out. You know, we, this happens in our medical offices when they're about to take blood on somebody, and we know that's, you know, the vasovagal just from nerves. What, what, in your opinion or experience, why, why are people fainting or having what you, you know, what we describe medically as syncope uh, on a plane? Yeah, so, you know, syncope has such a broad differential diagnosis, anything from benign to they're going to die in the next two minutes okay. and everything in between. True. So it's a, it's a challenge to evaluate somebody with syncope when they're in a clinic environment or an emergency department or some other um, ground-based medical facility. And it's even more challenging in a commercial aircraft where you don't have any tools. Right. You know, I, I think all the typical things that can cause syncope must be considered as well as potential dehydration, potential changes in the oxygen content, the expansion of gas volumes. You know, one law we didn't mention, Henry's Law, that talks about gas being dissolved in fluid. So if you've been diving and you fly too quickly after your diving episode and don't allow your body to re-equilibrate, you can actually develop acute decompression on this one, which oh, can present with I, I never even knew that. So, That's very interesting. Okay. Lots, lots, lots of things can cause it. I'll tell you that alcohol is very frequently a cofactor in what happens, okay. um, whether it be a behavioral issue or a syncope or nausea vomiting. So okay. alcohol is quite yeah. a frequent issue. Let me ask you this, because I think this is where medical personnel really is important, as you're saying, because you really, to evaluate you know, fainting, which sounds like a simple thing. It's not. I mean, I, I guess I would assume that the mental status exam would be very important. You know, you see a patient that's fainting. Can you arouse them? You know, do they know where they are? You know, is it a dehydration issue versus a more circulatory, like like potentially like a stroke or some transient ischemic attack, something of that nature, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, you're, you're, the best diagnostic tools you're going to have include your brain and yes. your hands. Yeah. Um, you're not going to be able to check even a, you know, quick uh, glucose by finger stick or, or anything. You just don't really have diagnostic tools on board these yeah, flights. I was gonna, yeah, I'm going to so. give you a later on the uh, the list that they have and Dr. Dean Mitchell's list with your approval of what they should have. <laughs> okay. Uh, the, the next most common medical emergency you mentioned is respiratory. And this makes sense, again, with everything you were saying you know, about all the different Boyle's laws and everything, too. I mean, shortness of breath. Now, that obviously in a patient also can be a couple of things. Someone could have a history of COPD. You know, a lot of times you'll see patients come on with oxygen. Could be a patient that's got a history of asthma. Maybe it's not well controlled. Or if they've had a recent respiratory infection. I wonder why this would really come up as an emergency, though. I mean, again, I guess they're so short of breath that, you know, in some kind of intervention has to be done. 
Well, yeah, yeah. You know, respiratory compromise is a very unsettling feeling for anybody, the patient, perhaps those family members or friends, or even people that are just sitting next to them that they don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody develops okay. respiratory distress, it's it's going to be obvious. So, Okay, so let's talk about what we could do to help them. I mean, again, and what we'll get into the kit more of them. So obviously, the crew could come over and bring down the oxygen, delivering oxygen to them. You know, the same way they would, it, obviously, in an emergency. That should be helpful. And also, I think there's albuterol, the medication, as I guess an inhaler, to open up the lungs. Is that from what you understand? Yeah, onboard equipment for respiratory distress includes several different medications and tools. Supplemental oxygen, like you said, mm-hmm. um, inhaled bronchodilator albuterol um, for anaphylaxis. Uh, bronchospasm related to anaphylaxis, you've got subcutaneous or intramuscular epinephrine. Right. You've got a formulation of Benadryl, again, for allergic issues. And then if you think it's cardiac in nature, you've got nitroglycerin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, none of us, I would hope, are going to willy-nilly administ- start administering these drugs blindly for somebody with shortness of breath. You need to try to arrive at a diagnosis and decide what you're going to do. Right, sure. Um, yeah. But those are the tools you have. And, you know, if somebody's in respiratory distress, certainly oxygen can be helpful. Yeah. Okay. We'll move along, and then we're going to get back to these, because I, I do, you bring up these key points. Okay, so the next one, which is also common, is gastrointestinal things, such as nausea. And, uh, I, you know, not to go against the airlines, but probably I would avoid, when possible, eating airline food. <laughs> um, and there's vomiting and diarrhea. So those can be quite messy, though. You know what I mean? Like, you're, imagine you're sitting in your, your seat, whether you're in business class or economy, and all of a sudden somebody starts retching or vomiting. What should the crew do? What should, the, uh, what, what should be done in that situation? Well, first I know of they all, have the bags. <laughs> all, all seats have the bags, so let's get a bag here yeah. and let's empty the bag in appropriate okay. fashion. You know, again, like syncope, there's so many different medical issues that that cause nausea, vomiting. You know, one could be motion, motion sickness, right. motion of illness. Course. Right, or if they have, um, you know, it's a very bumpy flight. If there's a lot of, you know, that's not uncommon either. Oh, yeah. they hit a bad pocket yep. of air, and some people are more sensitive yep. than others. So, add anxiety. You know, some people manifest anxiety by nausea, vomiting. So that could certainly enter into the consideration. And as I've mentioned already. Alcohol in excess is frequently a cofactor, if not the only factor involved in these in-flight emergencies. So, you know, those three entities certainly are responsible for some of these presentations. But, you know, coronary ischemia, gastroenteritis, acute kidney injury, just to name a potpourri of causes, can be responsible for nausea vomiting as well. So, like syncope, it's got a very, very broad differential diagnosis. Yeah. Okay. But later on, I'm going to get to some some potential treatments, though, because I, I, as I said, I like to be very, I know we can't always pin it down, but uh, we're going to talk about you know the kit that I'm going to start to carry around in the future. Okay. So cardiac, we talked about a little bit, as I said, happened when I was on a flight once, you know, when you we're talking about what's called angina, which is the low blood flow to the heart, which can precede a heart attack or myocardial infarction. A patient could also have an arrhythmia. And also the thing also, which I thought was really important that gets overlooked sometimes too, is the concern of a deep vein thrombosis where people get clots in their legs, especially on very long flights. 
I have my personal suggestions. Like, you know what I, I have my whole routine that I tell patients because in New York, I have a lot of patients that travel frequently. So I give them all my, my special tips, but I typically like to tell them if you're on a flight more than two or three hours to stand up every hour, move around a little bit. Um, I tell them to massage their calves. Any other special tips that you have for your patients so that doesn't happen? Oh, I agree with getting up and walking around frequently. I actually get up about every hour, on, particularly on longer flights. Right. You know, a short hour and a half, two-hour flight, I don't really bother too much with, but right. the longer ones, definitely. I think the other big issue is don't get dehydrated. Right. So drink water. Right. I, I actually drink a, a larger amount of water than I normally would when I'm on a flight because I know I'm going to get dehydrated. And we do know that hemoconcentration does factor into the pathophysiology of DVT development. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I think people, you know, and also they feel better. I, I tell my patients also, too, and I, I learned this actually, believe it or not, from the tennis players who constantly fly around the world, you know, for tournaments. And I remember reading, I think it was Arthur Ashe, actually, believe it or not, because I'm a big tennis fan. He was the one who said that um, getting up and moving around a flight, when he would get to the location, he felt better. Because, you know, again, when some people, they don't realize it, they sit in a seat for seven hours, eight hours, you know, you essentially like melt into the chair by the time you get to your destination. So, and of course, you know, you don't want to have an issue. Oh, yeah. I think it's also really important too. Now, this happened to Serena Williams, which I thought was really also interesting. She, I think she was prone to this, but she had had, um, after she won Wimbledon, you know, many years ago, she had fallen at, believe it or not, at the Wimbledon party and um, had broken a, a bone in her foot and also, I think, had laceration of tendons. And, you know, a lot of these athletes, they never really slow down. And she, very shortly after, I think within a week or two, was on a plane, you know, traveling many hours. And she ended up not only getting a deep vein thrombosis or clot, she ended up getting a clot in her lungs. So, you know, which is obviously the, one of the most dangerous things. So, again, I think we're going to get to some situations where people should really be careful and make intelligent decisions before they even get on an airplane. I agree completely. Yeah. I agree completely. If patients need to, they need to be smart. They need right. to realize that they're getting into a aircraft that may have no ability to land or at least limited ability to land for many hours. And they should not have any expectation that they're going to have anything other than someone holding their hand if they're sick. Right. They should not have an expectation that they're going to have medical care on board because some flights, you may have nothing. Yeah. Could they have contact with like ground control with, with physicians, you know, on the ground to help out at all? Let's just say, let's say there's no physician or nurse or physician assistant or EMT on the plane and they're obviously having an issue. Do, do the flight attendants have the uh, ability to contact, like, uh, I thought you mentioned in maybe one of your articles, like, is there, there's companies that have doctors on call for the airlines? Is, is that something that's real? Yes. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I don't know which airlines have this service. I do know that most, if not all major U.S. airlines and most of the small ones and probably many airlines from around the world do subscribe to these services. Um, there's one, for example, based at the University of Pittsburgh. They do great work. I don't have any association with them at all. Right. So this is a, uh, you know, totally conflict-free <laughs> right. endorsement. Right. But they do, they do great work. They are emergency physicians that are staffed and sit there and 
are aware of the environment, they understand the limitations, they understand the physiology, they understand the equipment, and so they will act on protocol and guide the flight attendants and the pilot regarding what should be done, you know, can we treat this patient, should we divert, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I'm told that the services actually um, get involved not only when there's no healthcare provider volunteering to assist, but in other times when the pilot would just like a quality check on what he or she is being told. Right. You know, when somebody right. says, I'm a doctor on board, you know, I would, I would venture to say that the vast majority of them are in fact a doctor, but there are probably some people that aren't, and there's probably some people that really haven't practiced medicine in a while that are doctors and may not be comfortable approaching these emergencies. So it's a way for the pilot to also get a little bit of guidance from a source that he or she knows to be true and correct. You know, that's exactly, it was actually going to get to my next point, like even trauma. You know, most of us, even including myself, I'm not a trauma you know, ER doc or surgeon and things happen. You know, I, I, I forgot if we were talking about this the other day, but uh, there was an article in the paper about there was a gynecologist that was on a flight and he got called. There was a woman, so that was at least good, who started to have a horrific nosebleed, you know, epistaxis as we call it in medicine. And it just would not stop. She was having some type of severe bleeding. And, uh, you know, so the, the gynecologist was there the, uh, a nurse who was on board came forward also, and between the two of them, they were trying to figure out what to do. And fortunately, using a little ingenuity, they found out somebody else on the flight had uh, Afrin, a nasal spray, which is a decongestant. Uh, the nurse ended up thinking she found somebody that had a tampon, and they sprayed the Afrin, the decongestant, all over the tampon. And the gynecologist shoved it up the patient's nose and basically occluded the bleeding. So it, you know, it turned out you know it had a happy ending, but. It just shows, yeah, even if you're a doctor, you know, again, not used to these uh, emergent situations, it gets complicated. Yes, very true. You know? Very, very true. Uh, the next one, which I'm going to get to, is actually a, my background and specialty. And, and I think that sometimes there's a lot of mistakes in what's done is allergic reactions. Now, that's also probably a common thing that can happen. Um, obviously, food allergy is a big one, you know, when patients... Or with the public, somebody by accident, you know, is getting a snack passed around and, you know, maybe has nuts in it that, you know, a lot of times typically they'll give Benadryl, which I personally don't think is the best thing for a patient that's having uh, especially a food allergic reaction. I mean, I think a patient has to obviously be carefully evaluated. Uh, epinephrine, you know, or, or adrenaline as it's called, which is given as an injection, is available now on the kits. Um, some patients are... I don't. I assume it's an EpiPen where it's self-injected. They don't have to draw it up. I don't. I really don't know. Are you familiar with that? Do they have to draw it up, or is it it's probably an EpiPen? Yeah, most most are an EpiPen. Yeah, I, you so know, that's good. You know, that would be incredibly dangerous to have a lay provider or even a trained healthcare provider who doesn't do this right. on a regular basis. Yeah. to draw up and administer epinephrine sure. because being off by. A, even a small factor right. could lead to undertreatment or massive overdose. I know I've seen that outcome. too. Yeah, you know, you know what's interesting too. I'll, I'll get to this a little bit also later on too. You know, I I sometimes have been telling my patients too that have these food allergy reactions to actually buy primatine mist, which was something that you know was considered in, in bad regard by the medical profession. You know, for asthma, you know, because it you know there were actually more problems developed from it being used on a chronic basis. But it actually 
the prime T mist has epinephrine in it. And I've told patients, if you're also noticing you're getting, you know, an allergic reaction in your throat, you can actually do that as an inhaler, like, you know, do four or five uh, puffs and that, that will get some epi into the body as well. So, you know, sometimes when people are afraid of doing the needles and all that stuff, so. Right, right. Um, you know, you have to be like, you know, you have to be really like a Dr. MacGyver, I call it. You have to be very, you know, a little bit, okay, you know. You have to be able to innovate. Innovate, that is, yes. You know, innovate and improvise. Exactly, exactly. You know, especially, you know, with the these more dangerous things. Um, the neurological issues, again, as you mentioned too, I mean, it really takes someone to be a little bit comfortable um, doing a mental status exam, which is not difficult, but again, when, when there's a lot of chaos going on, you know, making sure that the patient's not just awake and alert, that they actually can mentate properly, whether it's say their name, say where they are, you know, do some possibly basic math, that, that it's not, you know, what we call a prodrome or the early signs of a stroke or a seizure. Yes. Um, and the I last agree. thing, which again, you mentioned a few times, which I think is really important, is the whole, I guess what we call under psychological reactions. And, you know, there are patients that have, or people that have severe anxiety attacks on planes and alcohol can make people combative. And I don't know, what's your recommendation on that? I mean, what's the crew supposed to do in those situations? So the, I would kind of put all that into the category of behavioral or psychiatric yes. emergencies. Right. Happily, um, at least based on the one report from the New England Journal from the ground-based medical uh, control group, um, this is a very uncommon occurrence representing about 4% of in-flight emergencies. But when it occurs, it can be a significant risk for passengers, uh, flight crew, and frankly, the entire aircraft. Unfortunately, we've all seen reports of people getting up and trying to open the aircraft door, right. which can be done. Really, unfortunately, and yeah, and opening a uh, aircraft door at altitude would have disastrous results for many people and potentially everyone. So, these are these are very very dangerous, and uh, I'll point out that there really is very little on board to help manage these patients. There's no sedatives. There's no... Well, that's what I'm... I'm going to get uh, to that because I, I think that we have to, Dr. Brady, you and I have to somehow emphasize, you know, that there are... I, I think that these kits are really lacking, you know, and, you know, from what you've listed and what they're required to do. And we'll, we'll get to that in a few minutes. I think it's so... I think it's going to be one of the most interesting parts of our discussion today. Just lastly, with conditions, I, I have here to... There probably are some conditions, and, and I think you mentioned it in one of your articles, I've looked it up, that where people should not fly or take special precautions before a flight. One of them, you know, it would seem obvious, but if you've had abdominal surgery in less than two weeks, that would be, what you know, whether it's, you know, a, an opened abdominal surgery or even, I don't know, does it matter if it's... Um, laparoscopic. Laparoscopic, yes, yeah, so thank you. Is that, I mean, if someone had you know, some type of procedure like that, let's say they had their gallbladder taken out, how long would you tell them to typically wait before getting on a plane? Yeah, so in a general sense, and please, no one listening should use this as medical advice, okay. period, in this instance or really any others. But in general, what you worry about in any kind of surgery, an open surgical procedure or the more commonly done laparoscopic uh, procedures in today's world Gas is used to inflate the peritoneum so the surgeon can see what he or she's doing on the inside. Right. And, of course, most of this gas is expelled and or absorbed pretty quickly, but some of it does linger. And um, 
when you think about Boyle's law and the expansion of gas volume, you certainly don't want a small gas pocket in your abdomen, in your brain, or some other part of your body expanding to 1.3, 1.4 times its size. That can at minimum cause discomfort, and certainly, for example, intracranial issues could be a disaster. So in general, for abdominal thoracic surgery defined as major, it's recommended that you wait about um, 10 days before traveling. For minor um, surgical procedures, maybe less, maybe as, as few as one to three days. But it's best to discuss it with your physician before sure. you make decisions. Right, but they should just be aware of it. I mean, it makes sense. Okay. And what about, like, let's say, ocular surgeries? If someone's had a cataract or they had glaucoma surgery, which, again, you, you tend to think is very benign, typically a few days should be okay? Or, again, I know they should discuss yeah, with and, the doctor, but... And, again, you know, they need to talk to their ophthalmologist mm-hmm. or whoever, but um, it depends on the surgery. Um, most ophthalmologic surgery is probably about a week. Um, but if you've had uh, retinal detachment mm. treated with gas encephalation, which is one of the uh, therapeutic approaches to, to retinal detachment, you may need to wait anywhere from two to six weeks, depending on your condition and what your surgeon is telling you. Mm-hmm. And what about also, let's say, a fracture? I was, I was giving the Serena Williams case before, too. Let's say someone... I mean, when someone gets, a, you know, actually, you know, it's funny. I broke my, it was obviously not a lower extremity. I was on vacation in the Caribbean and the second day I was there, it rained and I fell by the pool and I broke my wrist. And uh, I was a little nervous about the medical care down there. So I hopped on the next plane and came to the United States to get my, you know, get it casted and everything too. Is there any special precautions? Well, obviously upper extremity versus lower extremity. If someone has a fracture and uh, it was just recently said or it's unstable, that um, that they should take into consideration. Yeah, you know, aside from all of the concerns about an unstabilized fracture, uh, this applies on the ground or in the air. You need to have it looked at and immobilized to the best of your ability. I don't think there's anything in particular other than common sense issues, you know, you shouldn't be flying with a femur fracture. You shouldn't be flying with um, these larger fractures where you need to have mobility. The, frankly, the big issue comes about with casting, not splinting, but casting. And you worry about mm, expansion of, right. of gas in the tissues and the tissue swelling perhaps more right. and then having compromised circulation. Yeah. And again, this doesn't, this isn't really the issue when you have a fiberglass or a um, other type of splint where you have incomplete non-circumferential coverage. You may have an ace wrap, but true casting is when you have plaster or fiberglass encasing the entire extremity all the way around 360 degrees. That's what you worry about. And you should probably wait somewhere in the order of about two days. Mm, okay. That, that's good advice. What about now infection? You know, like so many people, unfortunately, travel even though they've just gotten sick. They could have a severe sore throat. You know, they can realize they're coming down with a virus. Um, I, I know for myself personally, I wouldn't fly because I know I just, I tend to, you know, when sometimes I don't even realize I'm getting sick, but all of a sudden I land and I have a really bad sore throat. And I'm like, oh, I caught something on the plane or I had it maybe a few days before. And obviously like rashes, which could be contagious. Um, there's really no 
obviously nobody stops anybody from traveling that way, right? But it's really sometimes in people's own best interest to not fly, even, you know, they're coming down with a, a bad cold or virus. I mean, would you... Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, uh, and this this is personal responsibility of the passenger. Um, you know, he or she needs to look at the situation and say, "Look, I'm sick. I'm not quite sure what I have, or I know what I have, and my doctors told me not to travel." I mean, you have to be aware of your fellow human being and the public health concerns. I mean, that's one of the big concerns that the CDC, among many other large illness surveillance uh, bodies have is that it's incredibly easy, unfortunately, to spread pathogens across the globe in as little as 24 hours. Right. You know, somebody is sick in an area where a epidemic is, is moving forward. They hop on a plane and they fly 12 hours halfway across the world. Everyone on board or at least people close to them have been exposed then people in the airport, people in their home. So, you know, you can spread illness very quickly. And, you know, if you talk to your doctor, listen to what your doctor has to say. Right. Um, that's important. And if you haven't seen your doctor or a doctor, think about what you got. Not only do you not want to put yourself in a position where you may not be able to get medical care if you decompensate in flight, um, but do you want to get other people sick? And, you know, worst case scenario, do you want to have other people die from the illness you have? I would suggest everybody listening would say, no, I don't want that to happen. But you got to think, you got to be smart, and it, it can't be too self-centered. Right. That's a good point. I mean, a really important point. You know, the other thing, too, is if you ever see uh, myself, Dr. Dean Mitchell traveling, you will recognize me on a plane because I remember reading somewhere, and, and this I got sick a few times while traveling, and I was sure that it was from the plane. And then I remember reading somewhere that the bathroom on planes tend to be a real viral brew, meaning, you know, people, unfortunately, who are sick go in there, they're touching everything, and viruses stay on those stainless steel and countertops. And so obviously a very confined space. So uh, when I travel on planes, I always take gloves with me, you know, um, and so passengers will see me walking to the, the bathroom with my purple or blue gloves on, which I will use to open the knob, do my stuff, and even when I leave. And, you know, I tend to share this with my patients. And I tell them, if you don't, you know, forget to bring your gloves, ask somebody at the TSA. Maybe they'll be nice enough to give you a, a pair or two. Because uh, I found, since I do that, much less likely to get get sick. So... That's my I, my. I hope the color of glove that you pick actually works with your ensemble. I'd hate uh, to it. It doesn't glass. always. <laughs> I've gotten over that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's get to something which really fascinates me because this is where the rubber meets the road. What's in those medical kits on board? And I remember, as I said, when I was on that flight twenty eight years ago when I graduated medical school or something, and uh, I haven't looked at one recently because I haven't needed to. And then I saw the list that you put in one of your articles. So we're going to go through some things, and I'm going to have the list that apparently they have, and I'm going to maybe give Dr. Mitchell's recommendations along with Dr. Brady's thoughts. So anyway, the first thing they say they have on there is a blood pressure cuff, correct? Yeah. Yes, sir. Blood pressure cuff and a stethoscope. Okay. Let me ask you this, just in my thinking. Not a good thing to have. I mean, again, if you have somebody fainting or uncomfortable – Blood pressure, it's a vital sign. It'll give you some important information. Why wouldn't they have an automatic cuff? 
So you again, it doesn't you know you don't need the skill of having to be able to do auscultation, listening to the um, the heart sounds. It it is you know again you probably have to do manual. Am I correct? Yeah. So you know using a BP cuff and a stethoscope, what I would do is do a palpated blood pressure, right? Where I would just uh, you know pump up the cuff and feel for the patient's pulse and release the cuff. When I feel a pulse sure. uh, as I'm deflating sure. the cuff, that's the systolic pressure. Right. And I suggest that's right. all the information you need. Yeah. To answer your question about the automated one, um, I, you know, I, I, I disagree. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, I think, number one, I always worry about the accuracy of these devices. Number two, if you're a lay provider or a non-advanced healthcare provider, you know, what are you going to do with the information? You're not going to be able to intervene. So, and then thirdly, um, electronic equipment fails and um, it would need to be checked regularly by the airline crew. That is another burden on them. So, you know, I'm okay with having the old fashioned non-electric blood pressure cuff and stethoscope. I think that's fine. I'll respectfully disagree a little bit only because, as you mentioned earlier, sometimes there's a lot of noise on the plane and it's hard to hear the heart sounds. But I agree with palpation could be a good good way of doing it. So, okay, we'll have a little differing opinion on that. Yeah, I, Dean, I, I think maybe when you and I first talked about this, I'll tell you that I, I am definitely a, a nihilist in in what I think should be on a plane. Okay. Um, and obviously it's starting to come out, and it'll come out in the subsequent a conversation. Yeah, okay. All right, the other thing, too, which obviously, again, really needs medical skill, there's an oral airway and a valve bag. So, again, I assume if somebody is unfortunately in, in respiratory compromise or distress. This, you know, you can get uh, insert an oral airway so the, the airway stays open and bag some oxygen, you know, into their lungs. Right? So yes. We're, you know, we're yes, agree yes, with yes. That. Yeah, so, you know, if somebody's in cardiac arrest or respiratory arrest, unconscious and not breathing appropriately, then if you know how to use the equipment, of course. stressing that, please, if you don't know how to use it, don't use it because you're going to hurt somebody. Right. Um, right. But in those scenarios, this 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 equipment can be quite helpful in knowledgeable hands. Yeah. The other thing, which obviously is new, which again, the last probably several years, maybe the last decade, is that the AED, the automatic defibrillators, are available. Yes, sir. Now that that's a uh, that's a very important addition, and uh, I applaud the airlines for for adding those. Yeah. Yeah. That was a big thing. You know, it's funny. I remember a guy who worked for a company back probably two decades ago. He said, this is going to be big, you know, because we're making it so that, you know, really any lay person with some training, basic life support training can do that. So I assume the airline attendants, you know, know how, you know, can recognize if someone is in cardiac arrest. Uh, again, what you mentioned earlier, my biggest concern is where do you lay them down flat on, you know, with the airlines being so tight? I, I can't even imagine. I mean, how would that honestly occur? Would they have to like clear out the the row and lay them down on the chairs or on the floor? I mean, just I don't know if you've heard cases of this. I I can't even I can't really even picture it. Yeah, you know, if you have a small aircraft, that's going to be bad. If you've got one of the small commuter aircraft, uh, even the bigger you know, ones that, that tend to ferry ferry passengers from smaller airports to the larger hubs, that's going to be tough. You're going to need to to move the patient um, unconscious in cardiac arrest up, I think, to the front of the aircraft. 
so you can actually do chest compressions and and defibrillate them with the AED. Mm-hmm. In these larger aircraft, you know, some of the the really large ones with the the two five two seat configuration, yeah, very wide, lots yeah. of room, oh, and yeah? you can certainly okay. just find a, a wide place to move them. Would you do now, it on the floor, the or do you, would you have to lay them on the floor? Because again, you know, again with, the, with these things and compressions, you're supposed to have like a you know. Uh, oh yes, oh yes. Yeah, I mean, you, they don't have a board. Yeah, you can't do chest compressions. On a in seat. a partially reclined seat, right. even in the you know the business and first class, some of those fully reclining seats, the cushions are too soft, and it's going to impact your ability to do effective compressions. Yeah, yeah. You know, I once was called upon. I was in a, on a train in New York, and uh, a, a person went into cardiac arrest, and it, it was crazy. I was lucky there was another. It was an EMT on the uh, on the train, and we ended up putting him on the floor and doing compressions. And thank God he did. He got a pulse back. Um, well done. done. Yeah. That was though. Yeah. That's, you know, medical training comes in handy once in a while. (laughs) All right. Let's talk about some of the medications. This, this to me, I find really fascinating and unfortunately disappointing in some ways. So we're going to talk about what's available from what I can tell from, you know, from your literature. And then I'd like to have Dr. Mitchell's recommendations with Dr. Brady's approval. Okay. So they have acetaminophen, (laughs) they have acetaminophen for pain. Which, not too impressed with, but I guess it's, you know, if somebody has a headache, you know, not a bad thing to have. They have albuterol, which, again, most asthmatics who have asthma carry with them. But, again, it's good to have that. And, again, as long as somebody knows how to use it. You know, my specialty also is with asthma. So I really train people to use it their proper way. Otherwise, they're not getting as much benefit. Aspirin, again, now this is a question. I don't know if they have chewable aspirin because, again, remember, if you're having a heart attack, you know, severe chest pain, would you, again, recommend someone, you know, as far as you could tell, to you know, essentially chew the aspirin, you know, to hopefully, I mean, that's, I mean, if you're in the emergency room, that's, you know, again, you have a lot of things at your disposal, but something that you might tell, have a patient do as soon as they come into the emergency room? Yeah, um, I, I don't honestly know. I, I know that in many cases it is a chewable aspirin. Okay. Um, and I would assume it is, but I can't definitively say. If it's not, I would still have somebody chew it. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that breaks the tablet up, enhances absorption, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And aspirin doesn't taste that badly. Take a swig of water and you're going to be fine. Yeah. No, that could be huge. Uh, there's also, I believe, now I'm trying to see this. This When they say this dextrose 50, is that... Is that as a gel, or is that as like you have to you you have to push that? I I assume that's a liquid, right? You know, on the yeah, it's something for injection. So something oh, it's an uh, injection. injectable into an IV. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, because again, what I would have recommended because I keep this in my office. You know, again, sometimes we have patients that uh, get a little hypoglycemic. They haven't eaten all day, and we draw a little blood. They have a little vasovagal, and they're a little woozy. Well, we'll just take one of those those dextrose fifty gel things and just squeeze it into the you know, under in their mouth and just gets absorbed right away. But okay, yeah, you know, I I would suspect that the aircraft carries sugar to put in coffee. Okay, and yeah, sugar true. you could just tear sweet, up a pack, not sweet and low, yeah, not yeah, Splenda, but right, sugar, real sugar, sugar, the real stuff, certainly be used. I would be careful in terms of the unresponsive patient somebody that really isn't able to maintain their airway. Right. Um, I wouldn't want to put gel or particulate matter in their mouth because right. you could aspirate that. Right. But somebody that's awake um, and, you know, can manage their airway, personally, I think that would be fine. Okay. 
All right. I know in the kits they have Benadryl, diphenhydramine, oral, and injectable, which, again, as I've said, honestly, it's it's kind of a weak treatment for a severe allergic reaction. I guess for a mild one, if you're just breaking out in hives or have the itching in the mouth, it's fine, but it's also a little bit dehydrating. They do have epinephrine as an injection. Now, actually, this is important to differentiate for any of those medical people that are on a plane. There's the one to a thousand, which is what you give for an injection. And with the EpiPen, the way that the size of the needle, again, this is my expertise, it goes into the thigh because you want to get actually a intramuscular uh, injection versus the subcutaneous, which they used to get in the past because it actually works faster. It's like eight minutes versus 30 minutes. So that's a big difference. They also, you have to have, yep. you have to be careful. They have the epinephrine one to 10,000, which I assume is for intracardiac or into an IV if someone's in cardiac arrest, right? So you got to know, know your numbers when you're looking at that epinephrine stuff. So I saw also right. this lidocaine. Now, I assume that's injectable for like an arrhythmia or is that for, to you know, to numb up pain or it could be either? I would suspect that it's intended to, to be an anti-arrhythmic agent, anti-arrhythmic, but okay. uh, it's efficacy, frankly, for cardiac arrest management. Yeah. Um, there's limited. almost no data that shows that lidocaine has any positive impact on outcome, and there's very negligible, minimal information on amiodarone. So okay. as far as I'm concerned, they could take that out. Okay. Let me ask you about nitroglycerin, because I know that that sometimes has been back and forth, even in ERs, but a person's having crushing chest pain or obviously significant chest pain, as we were all trained as medical students, residents, and doctors, would you hesitate, obviously, after your careful evaluation to give them if their blood pressure was stable, give them nitroglycerin, you know, under the tongue? Yeah. So if I felt this was an acute coronary syndrome, yeah. heart attack, unstable angina, right. based on my history and limited physical exam, right. you're not going to have an EKG to do. And their blood pressure was, was at an adequate level. Um, I would think about sublingual nitro definitely. Yeah. If they had borderline or low blood pressure, or I was in doubt regarding the potential diagnosis, I probably wouldn't give it. Um, mm. I mean, as you probably know, there even though nitroglycerin is used across the globe in people with chest pain suspected of ACS, there is very limited data showing its positive outcome-altering effect in all patients. Wow. So, mm. you know, I, I think about doing it, but I wouldn't blindly give it to somebody with chest pain. Okay. You know, you brought up also, too, it's one of the things, and I'm going to talk about some of, as I said, my recommendations for meds, but also equipment. I I don't know why they wouldn't have on a plane. I mean, I know, again, obviously, it costs a lot more money to have, first of all, like a pulse oximeter, you know, one of those things where you put it on the finger, just to get an idea of their oxygenation and their heart rate. Do you think that would be a good, you know, good, simple thing to have? Well, like the uh, like the automated BP cuff, that's a piece of equipment that yeah. has to be checked and maintained. and in the layperson's hands or the person that isn't really used to using it, mm. it's not going to change what you do. And frankly, even for someone that's used to managing emergencies, is it going to change what you can do, knowing that their saturation's well, 85% Obviously, you might want to give them oxygen. You know, you might want to give them in, more oxygen. In, yeah, in some ways, it, it can help you make a determination about oxygen therapy, et cetera. But... You could certainly just empirically treat somebody with oxygen. Okay. I, I wouldn't have any heartburn if that was included, 
but I also wouldn't rally for it to be included. Really? Okay. You know, because what I'm, what I'm going to be recommending, as I said, in Dr. Mitchell's recommendations here, it's like, it's again, if I got called or if I decided when I'm traveling now, you know, in general, these are the things I'm going to carry in my bag. Because, again, you know, you know this, I'm sure, and I, I felt this. I hate feeling impotent in a situation where, you know, I may have the medical, hopefully, skills and expertise to help out, but I don't have the tools that I need. And um, and obviously, too, even an EKG, which would be really, I mean, you know, the technology is getting so good. I mean, as you know, people now have on their watches and there's there's a, a company that makes this thing where you just put your finger on the uh, on this little pad and it gives you a, you know, a one lead EKG rhythm. You know, which again right. could, could be so game changing. You know, in a lot of these things. But anyway, let's just go through a couple of meds as we're, we're going to be finishing up. That I would like to see on that. First of all, I'd like to have prednisone, and I'll tell you why. Uh, again, that to me, again, and I, and I teach when I teach the medical students or in the, even the ER residents at some of the hospitals where I've worked, that it's really good for swelling. You know, when someone gets, like, for example, what's called angioedema. Again, it could be from an allergic reaction. Um, believe it or not, prednisone is better than, in some of these cases, than epinephrine because it, you know, it, it works at a deep level. So that's something I'd like to see. Something else I'd like to see, we, we talked about before, is like a benzodiazepine, which I know would probably get complicated because it's a uh, controlled substance. But, you know, again, I was on a, a flight once where this was really, like, startled me. Uh, at first, it looked like the person was having an anxiety attack, but it, what happened was he was having what's called torticollis. And for our listeners, that's when your neck goes into these huge spasms. And I, you know, and I kind of recognized it. And I was fortunate we found somebody on the plane that had a, a benzodiazepine, and you know, we we helped him. But you know, again, for any of those like seizure disorders, I mean, what's what's your thinking on that? Yeah, so I think having an injectable controlled substance is dangerous. What about, what about oral? What about I think oral? that, well, I, I'd make the same claim. I mean, yeah. you know, what happens if you have a patient that has just had a seizure and they're stuporous and you're, you're on a six hour flight over water with no ability to divert and land and you give them something oral and wash it down with a little bit of liquid, they aspirate, occlude their airway, mm-hmm. big problem right away. Okay. Same patient, you give, them, you give them the oral Valium, for example, and they are able to swallow it appropriately, and they become very sedated. How are you going to support their airway? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and then also from the airline's perspective, they have no idea who, who the volunteer medical provider is that's stepping up to help. You know, is this person appropriately trained and skilled and certified and knowledgeable about intervening with an oral or an IV benzodiazepine or, or other potent medication? Um, you got to be really careful there. And I, I, I understand the airline's not wanting to put these drugs into the hands of people they have no idea who they are. All right, so let me ask you this, because I, I like to always give that bottom line for our listeners and and, uh, and what we're doing in this podcast. Let's say I'm traveling with these medications. I'm my, you know, I'm my own little medical kit here. If, suppose I come in and I step in, and again, I make a careful evaluation, even if I have to slip a, a lorazepam, like a dissolvable one under their tongue, or, you know, or I have a patient that's in a, an arrhythmia that I can feel from their pulse, and I happen to have in my bag uh, a beta blocker. I mean, as a doctor stepping in, how much risk am I taking? Am I doing a service or am I doing an injustice 
by quote coming to the rescue. What's what's your opinion? If you are, let's say I, you we got you got called in on a medical case, and uh, Doctor Mitchell tried his best, but maybe things didn't work out for the best, and you were asked to testify <laughs> against me or something like that. What what's I mean honestly? What what would be your your take? I mean, as far as uh, yeah, you know, doctor's responsibility. Well, you know, I. I... I don't think I'd testify against you in that setting, well, you. Um, <laughs> you or anyone else. Uh, that's a challenging situation. You know, I, I think as physicians, we all raised our hand with the Hippocratic Oath right. when we were awarded our various degrees. And one of the, the tenets of the oath is at first do no harm. So if you have a very good idea what's going on and feel very comfortable with the intervention, and very comfortable with dealing the sequela of the intervention, then I think you need to do what you think is correct. On the other hand, if you are being very empiric and not necessarily knowing what, where you're going and what you're doing, you're not obligated to respond in a d- definitive way. Again, this mm-hmm. is an austere environment. You're yes. at 32,000 feet, no privacy, no space, you know, really noisy, no medical equipment, no monitoring, and very few drugs, there's no expectation on anybody's part, and including hopefully yours, that you're going to be able to define, you know, provide definitive medical care. Yeah. I, um, guess, I guess you always I think feel you like need to do is, what you, you yeah. think is, is correct and appropriate for your patient and your abilities and your setting is, is I, the way I would yeah, recommends moving yeah. forward. I, I guess also too, you would probably obviously informally get informed consent. You know, if you said to a patient, you identify who you are the same way you would if, if in the on the street somebody collapsed or fell and said, you know, I'm not just the, Mr. Jones. I am Dr. Dean Mitchell or Dr. Brady. Uh, can I assist you? And you know, and obviously, if I decide to do something therapeutic, say I, you know, this is you know as best they can understand. These are the pros and cons. I'm suggesting we try this. And if they consent, that's you know, an appropriate thing to do. Would you agree? Yeah. Uh, you sound yeah. Say that again. I'm sorry. I didn't well, follow you, know, you entirely. What, what, what I'm saying is, you know, look, if, you know, the same thing with, with CPR or anything. I mean, as doctors, we're held to a higher standard. And it's not like we're just a lay person. You know, that if you find somebody laying on the street, we do have medical knowledge. Sure. And I think that if we identify ourselves, you know, what our level of expertise is, I say, if I'm a physician, if somebody says I'm a nurse and they say, gosh, I noticed, you know, you're in an abnormal rhythm or I, I, I notice, I see that you're, you know, you're short of breath and it looks like you're in bronchospasm, you know, your lungs are tightening. We should do this therapeutic. Would you consent to that? Um, I, I, I assume that would be an appropriate way to approach this. I guess that's what I'm, what I'm asking. I mean, again, for hopefully, you know, it doesn't happen. But again, it, it always could. If I, you know, I just don't travel as much as I used to. But if I did, these things come up. Like as you mentioned in your article, one in every 600 flights. That's not that uncommon. Yeah, it's not rare. No, um, you know, in terms of the the legal part, uh, I am not an attorney, so I'm not going to even venture to. Um, provide legal guidance. Right. I would say that as a physician, if the patient's capable or their loved one is is capable, it's always correct to introduce yourself and and say, may I assist you? I think that's the right way as a a physician should approach any patient in any situation. Um, And there's certainly then, uh, I would imagine, legal over and undertones to that 
question and answer. Now, if I find somebody in cardiac arrest on the street or in an airplane, I'm going to assume they want assistance unless I'm told otherwise, right. and I'm going to render aid. I'm mainly going to perform chest compressions and request an AED and put it on and follow the AED prompts. Okay. I would do the same thing if I came across somebody on the street, in a shopping mall, at a gym, right. in a church. Yeah, so, I mean, it's why we, like you said, why we take the oath, why hopefully we do what we do. Dr. Brady, right. I, w- I want to thank you so much for taking the time to discuss these really important and relevant topics you know, of in-flight medical emergencies. Uh, I hope that my if pleasure. I'm, I hope if I'm ever sick on a flight that you happen to be on the same flight with me. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> well, thank, thank you. And if any of our listeners have any other questions regarding medical emergencies on airplanes, please reach out on my Facebook site, Dean Mitchell, MD. We'll try to answer them or get the appropriate answers uh, to keep you safe as you travel the world. So um, thank you so much again, Dr. Brady. All right. Have a good day. Thank you so bye much. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.